welcome, welcome. You're listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm a registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. We have a bloody awesome guest on our phone today. Um, he's a friend of mine. I've known this guy since junior wow. kindergarten. That might be what five years old, something along those lines. <laughs> I think you're four in junior kindergarten. Yeah, and he's like one of he's one of the. Are you four in junior kindergarten? I should know this. I got a fucking. You're, you're kid four in junior kindergarten. kindergarten. <laughs> yeah, and he's like one of the smartest dudes I've ever met in my life. I, this is probably the last time I'll ever say that, and probably the first time he's ever heard me say that about him. We have actually spoken about that on the podcast, Michael. We have talked about you before, and I can't remember in what context, but we've said you. You're one of the most intelligent people we know. And I think it, I think it had something to do with like old school dance hall reggae. I don't know. Maybe. Well, that just makes sense. I mean, the reggae part, not the intelligent part, but the reggae part for sure. <laughs> well, all right. Well, I'm going to introduce our super cool guest. Hey, everyone. It's Amanda. And we have Michael Kempa on the phone, who is a professor at uh, University of Ottawa. And uh, he specializes in policing type issues, which is what we're talking about today, because amidst all of this COVID-19 madness, um, I'm sure you've seen a lot of the stuff posted online and in the media that the police have some particularly uh, extraordinary power right now. That's the only way I can think to describe it, where you can get a ticket for just, you know, standing too close for somebody. And there's a lot of debate about, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Is this and, normal? Is this not normal? Right. And then this entire idea of uh, recording tonight with um, Michael Kempo came about because there was uh, talk about the law enforcement having access to people's uh, personal health information. Well, really just people who have tested positive for COVID-19 and the police having access to, you know, their names, their address, birth date, yada, yada, that was, yada. I think that was it though. I don't yeah. think there's anything beyond that. At least that's what I read in whatever And article. Uh, so of course there, there's some questions that go along with that as there should be. So we wanted to have Mike on the phone with us to talk about, you know, historically is this normal is this a good thing is this a bad thing why do why do law enforcement yeah. need access to this information because really the rest of us yahoos can sit around going uh this is a horrible thing this is a breach in confidentiality under the personal health information protection act and, i know my rights and, and many of us probably don't even know if this is something that is common you know in emergency type of situations that type of stuff there's a whole bunch of people that are uh arms up in the air we're giving up all of our freedoms the government is making us, you know, not not allowing us to work and then throwing us in front of the TV and feeding us information that they want us to see by, you know, constant 24 hour news cycle. And we're losing all of our freedoms. Like I know a dude who's like organizing hashtag go back to work rallies down at Queens Park. Right. And he's all over this type of stuff. Yeah. So we wanted to hear from somebody who actually understands what's going on right now versus, yes. you know, speculating. And yeah. Why? <laughs> why am I reading these things? But before we do all that, Mike is super interesting and i want you if you don't mind give us the background on your journey to doing your phd because it is super interesting yeah look i mean i i started off with everybody out there in in scarborough and i went to u of t downtown and i was i was more into the psychology end of things in my undergraduate and um i i just turned out i wasn't really good at doing the experiments all by myself you know with the rats and all that other kind of stuff <laughs> you mean and you I don't like I lab coats a, no i didn't like the lab coat <laughs> and uh, i just didn't uh, it wasn't really a social enough for me and i took a criminology course with this professor who was pretty well known at the time it was kind of a theory kind of course criminal justice theories and i ended up doing really well in the course 
And, um, you know, this guy got to talking to me and said, why don't you go on in criminology and maybe do a master's degree, which I did. Uh, he had set me up to go out to South Africa and do some studies there um, in some of the shanty towns outside of Johannesburg and Cape Town. How long were you in South Africa for? I was there for a couple of years, um, and uh, I was really looking at policing in those areas, which had nothing to do with the public police. And uh, in the sense that, you know, in shanty towns where there's no electricity or running water or state services, uh, there's no public police service either. But there certainly is order. Uh, and most of it is produced by non-state, you know, civilian actors mm -hmm. that uh, do their own justice system. So it kind of went from there with the realization that the state is an important part of policing, but not the only part of policing. From there, I went out to um, to Northern Ireland, um, a part of their peace process there in the late 90s and early 2000s was to rebuild their policing system because it was seen as being very biased in favor of uh, the people in Northern Ireland that want to stay part of the British Union mm -hmm. as opposed to the Irish Catholics. I was there for a spell. Uh, that took me out to Australia, of all places, um, where I did my doctorate um, in similar issues in policing and then back to Canada where I am now at the University of Ottawa. Before we get really serious, can you give me the accents for all of them? Because I, I know you must be able to. If, you've, if you spend enough time there and Mike is great at this stuff, I, can, I, I just want to hear it. Mike, I just realized I've known you for probably close to 13 years now. And I didn't actually know that entire story. I didn't know all of the places that you had studied and where you had gone. Like, I, I you know, I knew you spent some time in, in different countries, but now it is all making sense to me. Every time that you and I would hang out and different accents would come out, I didn't actually know that these were authentic. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the big part of it would be that from my research, I had to interview a lot of people like, you know, audio recording and then go through the recordings later, which is really boring, right? Like you got to transcribe the interviews and then really go through the detail of what people are saying in certain turns of phrases that they're consistently using. So to kind of entertain myself while I was doing that really tedious work, I would try to figure out like, you know, what are the main characteristics of, of the accents and patterns <laughs> of speech that these people are using, right? So, you know, when, when you go through it, it's all about where in the mouth or the throat that they're talking from and what they're doing with their teeth and lips and stuff, right? So like in South Africa, um, they tend to, they move everything to like the top of their throat and they roll their ass. So they'd say something <laughs> like, and they flatten their ears. So they said, like, in South Africa, you must go there. It's one of the greatest places in the world to live. And it's very guttural and they roll it. But then if you go from a place like South Africa to Australia, they move it all up to the nose, from the teeth to the nose, and they start saying things. Everything sounds like a question, like, Australia is one of the greatest places in the world to live. You got to go there, really? <laughs> Whereas in Northern Ireland, it's a bit like the Scottish. They pull their O's, so like now would be like nigh, and then would have a flattened E like a South African, like then. But they're very direct and not sing-songy at all. So they'd say something like, um, um, in Northern Ireland, there'll never be peace. There wasn't peace then, there isn't peace now, there'll not be peace ever. <laughs> it's just like when you talk to these people, you can try to work it out. And it's really interesting. The way people talk is very revealing of their personalities, like whether they're direct or indirect. Like in Canada, we're very polite. We go around in circles. 
in some of those other countries, they're much more direct and just the turns of phrase are right in your face. You know, that was amazing. Like, I, I feel like we could just end the recording right there. That was amazing. <laughs> anyway, you gotta, I have to be in the place for a while to get the accent right. I've gotten into trouble with it. You know, one time I tried, I was with a friend of mine in a bar and I said, I bet you I can convince the barman the bartender that I'm from Northern Ireland. And my friend was like, you can't do that. So anyway, I went up to the bartender and I was like, pint of Guinness for me. And I, I'm not making this up. The bartender said, are you from Northern Ireland? And he was from Northern Ireland. So then I was like, Jesus, I've got to keep this going now. Otherwise he's going to think I'm making fun of him. You know, it went on for like 10 minutes. I thought he was going to beat the hell out of me. You know? Oh my God. Yeah. You know what? I, I actually very, distinctly remember being out at a bar with you in Ottawa somewhere. I don't think it was like a party night. I think we might have been out like maybe having dinner at a bar or something at like at a pub. And I remember you speaking in all these different accents and me thinking like, how is he doing this? Because you were going back and forth from place to place. And well, now I understand spending hours and hours listening go. to these people. Anyway, that was a fun intro. Um, before we do move on to even more serious stuff, can we actually do like a really quick intro about you like what you're doing now what your your career path looks like now that you know we know the path you took studying all of these different things yeah so at u of o um i mean when i came back to canada i really got involved in in, in studying policing issues and my main concern has always been the kind of politics of policing and criminal justice so you know what powers do are police given at different times how do they exercise them uh, and how are they held accountable for the way that they use these powers? And when I say police agents, I don't just mean public police. I also mean private security, uh, things like insurance companies, and sometimes health practitioners who get involved in what we would call networks of policing. You know, the very the agencies that cooperate with one another in, in a system of policing, not just limited to the public police. So working on that a little bit. Um, you sort of get to know the different policing agencies around Canada. Uh, although I, I guess they would see me as something of a critic, they probably would have seen me as one of your more fair academics. So I've been very lucky. I've had really good access to police organizations, public and private, over the years. Um, I guess to the extent that, you know, the times that I've made commentary, even when it's been negative about the police, you know, it's been fair. So, I mean, overall, you have a good relationship with law enforcement then. They don't look at you as somebody who's overly critical or an enemy. Um, I mean, I see some of the things you post. I think overall, you also have a pretty um, positive view of law enforcement, if that's the right word. Is that correct? Do you feel like... Yeah, I mean, I think I see it as because I have a sort of a historical view, I take an historical view of policing agencies you know, I would look at them as having um, a structurally very difficult job in the sense that their legal authorities and the constraints on them give them what we actually call in criminology an impossible mandate. They cannot actually accomplish what we expect them to accomplish. So they try, they get themselves into trouble, um, but a lot of it has to do with the expectations that are put on them to do things that are simply impossible with the framework that they're working with. I think I need more. I, I'm with you, but yeah. I think I need to understand what that means. The constraints on so here's them. The, the main thing, yeah, the main thing about the cops is we expect them in Western society to prevent crime. They're all about crime prevention, mm -hmm. right? And we measure their success in terms of how effectively they prevent crime in our society. There's a good reason for that. 
And it's that the police organization started in the private sector. In the private sector, you can actually prevent corporate malfeasance or corporate crime amongst your employees quite easily. Because, you know, let's imagine you work in a factory or something. If you've got a private security service that's policing the workers in a factory and making sure that they're not stealing on the job or, you know, stealing time or whatever, they've basically got a captive audience. They can survey them with no difficulty. There's no legal limits on the surveillance that can be performed in an office. You know, you can keep track of your employees' time, how they take their lunch break, when they go for coffee, all of that. Mm -hmm. And you can actually really effectively prevent any type of bad behavior. Now, we took that idea from the private sector and said, this is great. Let's do it in the public sector. Let's put men and women in uniform. They started off with only men and said they can prevent crime in public space in the same way that they've been doing it in the corporate sector. The only problem is that's a legal impossibility right. because, you know, we have things like constitutions and you cannot be surveyed to that extent mm-hmm. in the in the public space. So the public police started off as trying to do the same thing, and they quickly found, we're talking about like in the early 1800s to say 1850s, that they simply couldn't do it. Every time they sort of crossed that line into over-surveillance or whatever, the cases were thrown out of court. Uh, They were not getting effective prosecution. So what they had to do was fall back on the default position of patrolling around all over the place and just hoping to basically get lucky and stumble upon crime as it happened and respond to calls for service from the public as quickly as possible. And if you do that, because that's the only legal option really available to you, you will never, ever, in a million years, prevent crime. So their job is basically impossible. So every time they try to do the job we've given them, they start having to go around the law a little bit and surveil us and get intelligence gathering and do things like profiling and and all of these things that we don't like that are typical in the private sector, but they're not allowed to do it in the public sector and they get into trouble. So although, you know, pro-police, I don't know if I go that far, I'd say maybe I'm sympathetic to the police. I say, gee, you know, we really expect these men and women to do a lot. And every time they try to do it, we say you're breaking the laws that you're there to uphold and they get into trouble. I agree with you on that point that they somewhat have an impossible task. And I think they're like in any profession, there are sort of two groups of people. So I think the issue being that there are certain police officers that are trying to do what they think is right and what's, you know, upholding the law and doing what they need to do. And then I think there are police officers that realize that, I need to get this job done and I'm going to do it by any means necessary. And then they start, you know, sort of bending the laws. And yeah, that's, that's where people get really upset with the police. You're exactly right. There are those two types. And in a way, there's also a third type, which is just, you know, people are people and everybody, everybody has biases, right? Implicit biases or whatever. And unfortunately, it sneaks into how people do the job of crime prevention Yeah. so that in addition to your, you know, you've got some out and out racists in the police in small number, but you also have a lot of police officers just because they're human who their biases creep into the decisions that they make on the ground and how they apply the law 
they don't necessarily mean any harm, but yeah, the outcomes are, are completely unfair. I don't know if we're quite ready to move into this yet. I'm going to look at Mark for the eyes. Are we ready to move into what's going on in the world right now? Yeah, we're good. Okay. I'm, I'm not going to ask any direct questions. I actually just want to get your take on it. What additional powers do you think law enforcement has been given right now with these ridiculous circumstances that we're all living under with the global pandemic that I never thought in my entire life that I would live through? Do you think that they've been given a lot of extra power? And do you think it's fair to them? Do you think it's fair to us? What are your thoughts? So we're talking about because we're in a state of emergency. Look, the biggest one is access to information, right? I mean, your private information Things to do with, you know, your mobile phone, cell phone is obviously connected to a satellite and traces your whereabouts, who you've come into contact with based on what other cell phones have been near you, who you've been calling, uh, purchases that you've made through your credit cards or other electronic methods of payment. I mean, all of these data traces are normally... You know, they're supposed to be your private business. Now, again, the private sector usually gets a hold of that material and uses it for marketing purposes, yep. you know, that we all hear about on Facebook. I mean, you know, you look at something the other day, I looked at a Jeep online. Now I've had 30 advertisements for Jeeps in the last 12 hours. I mean, you know how it is, right? What's happened now is they've been giving this information to police, right? Under the status of emergency, they say this is necessary for the maintenance of public health. They need this information. It's exceptional. And in an immediate sense, yes, absolutely, 100%, this is a violation of your charter rights. Like, there's no doubt about that, right? Mm -hmm. In the same way that when you're out driving uh, in the Christmas holiday season and you're stopped at a ride program breathalyzer checkpoint, that is also an explicit violation of your charter rights. But what happens is we say this violation of your rights under Section 1 of the Charter is is justifiable in a free and democratic society, given that it's a small violation that produces a large public benefit. It's, in other words, the ends justifies the means. Right. It's reasonable, right? So they're saying in the states, of uh, when you've got a COVID-19 or other pandemic situation, the amount of freedom that you're giving up and letting law enforcement know where you've been, who you've been talking to, maybe where you've been doing purchases, because they can find out if somebody who had COVID was doing purchases around the same time in the same vicinity, and therefore you might have been exposed, etc., is justifiable in the circumstances. So we say, hmm, is it? Now, this is where it gets tricky, because then you're actually talking about are there some rights of yours that are more important to you at a moment in time? Are you willing to sacrifice some rights for the maintenance of other rights? Mm -hmm. So the argument that's going in Canada at the moment is most Canadians would probably agree that, yeah, I'll give you my electronic data traces where I've been, where I've been buying things. If it means that I can get out of my house faster, because basically being under house arrest is a bigger violation of my rights than you, the government, having my electronic traces. That's the official kind of line on it. Mm -hmm. And some people obviously don't accept it. My view on it would be, though, again, this is historically completely and totally normal police business, right? Now, I don't know if that makes it right, but I can tell people that this has been going on for two or 300 years and was actually one of the original purposes of policing organizations in, in Western Europe. It was less about crime prevention and more about public health and safety maintenance 
for controlling things like contagion, plague, and disease, uh, just as important as crime. So it's it's something that's been around for a very long time. That's what I needed to hear. I needed to understand why in today, 2020, why do police need to know all of the people who have tested positive for COVID-19? Why is that happening right now? Well, there's two things. It's well, The main thing is it's supposed to be about surgical prevention, like to do it in a pinpointed way. So if we don't have the information, everybody has to get locked down uh, in a in a social isolation or social distancing kind of approach of staying home and whatnot. But we're sa- they're saying if we can get the information of where people have been and do the tracing fast enough, we can just get those who are infected out of circulation for the time of, that they would need to be quarantined or isolated so that the disease doesn't spread and overwhelm the public health system. Now, if you look historically, it is normal, but it hasn't always worked very well, right? So, I mean, in theory, that sounds totally reasonable, right? You'd say, well, sure, you know, I'll give up a little bit of freedom if it means a small number of people get the medical intervention that they need to get this disease under control. Wonderful. That means we can all leave our houses sooner. Uh, the key is when we've done it in the past, when we did it with uh, the Spanish flu in the early uh, 20th century, 1919, 1920, when we did it with polio, uh, smallpox, typhoid, whatever before in history, we have tended to apply these rules unfairly. If everybody in society had their data analyzed and targeted by the police in the same way, and mm. we went after everybody who had COVID, no problem. But what we know is every time we go after the poor, we go after racialized people, mm-hmm. we go after the, the most powerless people, uh, number one, because it's easier. They typic- People who have the least amount of power are typically out in public space the most, right? and therefore the easiest to intercept on the part of the police because it's not that easy for them to come in private property, right? And second of all, um, they don't have the legal wherewithal to resist these types of things from the police as easily. Mm -hmm. So time and time again, if we're not careful in how we apply this, you find that it's the poorest and the least powerful members of society who are targeted and end up you know, having their rights infringed as opposed to saying, well, it's just everybody who has the virus. Yeah. Before you mentioned that, or you you were given the idea that we're giving up a little bit of our freedom for a larger good, right? Do you think that most people even recognize that they're actually giving up some of their freedoms? No, they don't. that's, That's the big thing with freedom is that people do not realize that they're giving up freedoms uh, really until they find that they're stuck in a corner. They're really in a hard place because it goes bit by bit, sort of drip by drip until you realize that you might find yourself jammed up in a legal situation with nowhere to turn to. There's nobody to hold the public police or other government authority agency accountable mm. for what they've just done to you, right? So until you're in trouble, you you may not really know it. You're a great example of that. Yeah. Great example of that. Every day, not right now because we're in social isolation, but on every normal day, millions of Canadians enter shopping centers, enter corporate towers or leisure spaces like golf courses, Canada's Wonderland, all these types of spaces. They're private property. You give up all of your constitutional rights every time you enter that property. A private security guard in a mall can basically do whatever you like to you, and you'd never know that 
until you get jammed up by a private security guard at them all. That's why I put this in the... I, okay, so I'll tell you. I dropped an article in a massage therapy Facebook group. There was, a, I think, a CTV article about the police officers or frontline workers, police, EMS, firefighters, having access to names, addresses, birth dates for anyone that's tested positive in Ontario. And most people in that group didn't realize it, it was kind of scary to me that they didn't realize like hey we're we're actually giving up some freedoms with this do you know what i mean and there was there was there was people that did but i just like no one even understood why i dropped that in there it's just to make you think about that kind of stuff like we said most people don't even realize that you're giving up a little bit of your freedom they don't realize and when people would say well what's the problem with that why have you got an issue with people who are infected with the virus being, say, targeted by the police or health or other or other people who have been given police powers, like, you know, under the Emergencies Act, certain health professionals are given police powers to enforce quarantine, for example. And we'd say, well, what's wrong with that? You're just taking sick people out of circulation so that they don't infect other people. And I'm saying, yeah, that is accurate as long as you're going after everyone who's sick and not just exactly. certain segments of the population. And unfortunately, we're getting back to that idea I raised just a few minutes ago. We have our implicit biases. I don't care who you are. You could be the nicest police officer in the world. You're going to have certain biases about how you think the world works, and you're going to target people and how you think it that you should think work. are the problem. Yeah, exactly. How you think it should work. Absolutely. Well, and that's the thing is police officers are humans. And like you said, everybody has their own implicit biases. Um, I know that I saw that one news story about the father in Brampton who was... Oakville. He was, Did oh, you hear Oakville. this, Mike? He was rollerblading with his sons. He had two sons. Everybody in the same house. So he has these two sons, and he took them rollerblading. And they were right. rollerblading in um, what parking lot? It was, it was a it was, community center. It was center. a community center. So it was a, city, it was a city community center parking lot. And he got a ticket. He got an $880 ticket yeah. for being in an empty parking lot with his own kids. And when I read the article, it was, you know, the police officer, I guess, approached him and said, you can't be here. And he kind of questioned the police officer, like, well, who am I hurting? I Nobody else is here. And the, I mean, whether again, he questioned or whether not, he questioned or doesn't not doesn't matter. matter. But by the sounds of the article, and again, it could be just who wrote it, because again, the the reporter yeah, could have their own bias. Exactly. But it made it sound very much like the police officer was ticketing him more because he was questioning his authority over anything. But either way, sure. the fact is. Then you look at something like that and you're thinking, okay, so we've now given people, these are human beings who have all their their own biases and their own thoughts about how things should be happening. And, you know, maybe they are taking this entire um, pandemic situation differently than other people because maybe they are personally affected. Maybe they have a family member who has been infected or, you know, maybe they're afraid or who knows. But the fact is they're being given additional powers because of what the state of emergency and so this police officer gave this man who was in an empty parking lot with his two sons rollerblading and he gave him an 880 ticket for for being right. out in public so there you get down to the question of you know what is the preventive benefit of that fine probably zero exactly like if you if you were assigning a penalty for the purposes of of, of correcting a behavior that was contributing to a public risk, maybe people would say that's reasonable. But if people are isolated and just have made a mistake, you know, they've really missed a sign, 
you know, that says you can't be exactly. shooting baskets in this, in this you want schoolyard. To, you want to write me a ticket for trespassing? That's a whole other story. Right. But typically they would say, and you know, if you even listen to the utterances of say the Toronto mayor, John Tory, or, or the provincial premier, Doug Ford, they've said, you know, really we're looking for police officers to warn people unless there is an imminent threat to, to public health. Right. Exactly. So they yeah. say, well, that sounds reassuring, but then who gets the discretion? Um, is it relatively sort of wealthier looking members of the population that are strolling around? Or is it, you know, uh, a homeless person who it would be one of your typical, what they would refer to in, in really critical criminology literature is people that are viewed as police property by the police. Like they're just almost, you know, a problem to be managed by the police rather than people in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, that's where the discretion comes in. That's where we get the problem. And that's where the oversight and accountability stuff has to come in. So you say, okay, let's say you guys have convinced me. Let's have this regime for extraordinary information sharing with the police and special powers. And let's take them back, give them a little bit more of a role like they had in the 1700s in France of dealing with public health and contagion. Sounds good. But let's really make sure that we're collecting data about what we're doing here so that we can keep track if we've got a bias problem and correct it quickly um, so that we don't start falling back into some of the problems I mentioned before. You know, for example, we're in the States. It's always the African-American community that gets the short end of these uh, public health initiatives, right? And in Canada, obviously similar, but we have our particular uh, issues with uh, First Nations mm-hmm. uh, Indigenous communities. Where it's like a disaster for relationships between police organizations and those communities in, in this country, right? You've got to have that oversight and accountability or this thing could just run, you know, basically totally, totally amok. So that's the first side of it. What's going on with police officers and how they see the world and how that can kind of skew the results in the direction of the less powerful. You got to flip it around and look at the other side, too, and say, well, what's going on with different kinds of people who may be targeted for different reasons? Well, the big one is. If you're less well off and, you know, your experience of social isolation is going to be very different if you're living in public assisted housing in downtown Toronto or its surrounds, exactly. uh, or if you're living if living in a big house in Forest Hill, right? Um, you know, if you don't have a backyard and a hot tub uh, and, you know, whatever it is those people have, I don't know, little tennis courts or whatever, <laughs> and you just have a little tiny balcony or no balcony and an extended family living in a two or three bedroom apartment, uh, you're going to want to be out in public space with that much more urgency. So just by virtue of being out and about, you will be targeted by the police organization and other policing agencies much more than the more powerful in society. I never really thought about that, about all of the people. I mean, we've talked about that there's, you know, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different boats and there's people who are struggling so much more. I never really thought about the fact that, yeah, if you are living in public housing or just, you know, like you said, an extended family living in a two bedroom apartment and you're out and about and possibly already a visible minority, then you're just getting targeted by police. Like what the Right. It's a bit of a double a bit of a double whammy in the sense that you're out and about more by necessity. Yeah. And dealing with the bias problem at at the same time, right? Now the the tricky bit too is when we're getting into something that's unfamiliar, I mean the police organization, although they're always faced with change and different challenges or whatever, I mean, fundamentally, they do pretty similar types of work for decades at a time, right? Mm-hmm. 
So, I mean, like big things change with the cops too. like the popularization of the automobile fundamentally changed policing, you know, in the 1940s, 50s and 60s. Right. And then obviously, you know, um, computer technology has fundamentally changed what the police do in that, you know, uh, there's crime on the Internet. And if there's no Internet, there would be no crime on the Internet. Right. But you start you, you bring in a major unfamiliar threat to public safety, like global pandemic. Uh, and you've got an organization that hasn't been set up to deal with this at all that's thrown into that water, they're going to make big mistakes, right? And not necessarily by by bad intentions. They just haven't been set up to do that at all. They've been, you know, a public safety crime prevention organization. One of the, one of the metaphors they often use for that in like introduction to criminology courses, they say, you know, if you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So, I mean, if you've got a police organization that's there to enforce the law, everything kind of looks like a crime problem, even if it's a public health problem or an inequality problem or a race problem or, you know, so forth and so on. I know this is possibly moving backwards, and I don't know if we've really touched on this at all. What is your opinion? What are your thoughts on, you know, we talked about taking away rights, and I know there's a lot of people screaming at the top of their lungs at the fact that even just having to stay home is stripping us of so many rights. What are your feelings towards uh, social distancing and everybody staying home right now? Personally, I mean, it's hell. I can't stand being cooped up at home uh, and, and, and uh, the, you know, just the difficulty of even going somewhere like to do shopping or, you know, the lack of interaction with other people like students, you know, now I just can deal with them online as opposed to in person and so much nuance is lost and, you know, on and on and on. It's very, very, very difficult. And at the same time, I'm a relatively privileged person. Like my job is not in jeopardy. I'm still being paid. You know, I'm I'm in not a, a big house, but a place with space. But it is a very, very difficult thing. It's understandable why we would do it in the early days, because when you don't know what to do, like there's a new unfamiliar challenge of global pandemic, the only sane thing is to really sort of freeze in space and time and try to buy some time until you can figure out what's going on. In a complete absence of information, you know, kind of predictive, calculable government where they say, if we try X and Y and we can adjust a little bit and see how it goes, that way of doing government goes out the window. You've got to just batten down and say, buy time get information, and then start making calculations again, yeah, yeah. right? So now that we've got a little bit of information, we can start making those calculations and really start to say, well, how long do we have to do what we're doing to derive a significant public benefit? And at the same time, unfortunately, uh, but it's reality, policy is a cold game of calculation, right? Like you have to say, what is the harm to citizens of lockdown balanced with the harm of freeing up lockdown. So we know if we free it up, there will be a certain number of deaths associated with COVID. However, if we lock down for an extended period of time, how many people will suffer mental health problems Mm -hmm. associated with being locked down? What about increases in domestic violence? What about um, children who don't have access to services? So at a certain point, when the information on how the epidemiology of the virus is, is going come in, we'll have to make those adjustments. Now, because it's so difficult to be locked down, though, the longer we're locked down, the more I find people are willing to give up their rights to give information to the police Mm -hmm. because they say, God, just let me out of the house. I mean, I don't care. You want to look at my purchases? They're humiliating, but uh, go ahead. You know, uh, just let me out of here. And we got to be careful with that because 
you know, there are those who would say these things will be exploited by government and policing organizations. That's where you see where the conspiracy people step in. It's not yeah. even just, oh, well, this is an opportunity. It's no, this was planned. Do <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Like, it's planned to lock you down. That way we can do these things, right? I'm not a fan of planned conspiracy theories. I'm with you on that. Just for the reason that having spent so much time in bureaucracies, government bureaucracies, police bureaucracies, university bureaucracies, media bureaucracies, they're also incompetent. That the idea that these things could be coordinated by like a small head at the top is like absolutely ridiculous, right? Like, not the people who are incompetent, the structure of their organizations is so incompetent that there's no way they could ever coordinate these things effectively. Rather, what happens is organizations have kind of a life of their own, right? Mm -hmm. They call it uh, uh, autopoiesis, which is basically organizations tend naturally to want to absorb power over time, and they move in that direction. And every kind of actor in the agency, whether they know it or not, they kind of move in that direction. So if you give police organizations more power, they're not going to want to give it up um, as time goes along. And they, they almost never do. So what's an emergency today becomes normal in five years and forgotten in 10 years. So if you go through the history of emergency legislation, those powers that are specially enacted, you know, in inverted commas, specially enacted, 10 years later, they're still there in most cases and completely forgotten about. We never give them up. And it's not that anybody necessarily intended for that to happen. It's just that's the interest of every organization collectively they never give it up. We used the example the other night yeah. of 9-11, how like how people changed, how, you know, the social world changed, how policy changed and how eventually social people, life people and back. people went back to normal. But policy, policy stuck. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, if, if you look at the changes around the security apparatus for 9-11, I mean, it's like the world is in no way similar to what it was in uh, in 1999-2000, prior to 2001. And it hasn't gone back. It wasn't like 10 years later they said, oh, well, you know, we kind of have that um, that terror thing under control. So let's, you know, let's start scaling this back a little bit. Uh, all those organizations that they can, that they created, um, you know, in the United States, you have in mind Homeland Security mm-hmm. and so forth, and in Canada – um, you know, the um, special branches of the RCMP that were dedicate, dedicated to those tasks and CSIS and so forth. I mean, they, they were not scaled back. If anything, they just continued to grow and they compete with one another for government for the biggest piece of government funding. Mm-hmm. So they never want to give it up. If, if an organization gives up an authority, they're giving up a role. And if they're giving up a role, they're giving up budget. Why would any organization do that? Right. <laughs> I love this because you can speak to both sides perfectly. So I want to know, what, what do you think about the back-to-work protesters? Because they're saying everything that you're saying, but you also understand the structure of policing. You know, the back-to-work protesters, I, I, I completely understand their point of view. and even their right to express that view and have it be considered and debated and circulated in society or whatever. I mean, I would have an issue with the modality of protest, right? Like if you, if you are, if you're congregating in large number for the purposes of protesting at this time, I mean, it is epidemiological science that you're increasing the circulation of a known virus, right? So, you know, the old axiom in kind of law is 
your freedom to swing your arm stops at hitting my nose, mm-hmm. right? So you can basically do whatever you want in a free society as long as you're not harming somebody else. Right. So when, when you when you protest a number at this time, you actually are, as an empirical fact, circulating a virus that can harm other people, which is a problem. But at the same time, excessive lockdown for a period of time that may not be epidemiologically necessary is also a problem. So, I mean, these people should have a voice and be considered. We shouldn't only get the government message. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of petitions going around. I know that I'm part of a group. I get emails daily, uh, a part of a group. uh, It's called Save Small Businesses, just, you know, really focusing on helping those of us who don't necessarily qualify for government loans we don't get a lot of we don't get a lot of help even you know the rent relief for example doesn't really apply to a lot of us so i'm part of this group and yeah you know we send letters to government and we're signing petitions but we're not standing out in large numbers of people at queen's park protesting being locked down because like you said, that's not really, you know, not really getting our message out effectively. It's actually just making us look a little bit irresponsible. Is that the right word? Protest is always so tricky, right? Because it's like you're obviously going up against the status quo. And no matter how you do that, you're going to offend some people that appear to be unreasonable. Yeah, for sure. And then there's the question of how dangerous is your activity really to to the, the broader uh, public? You know, and these are things that there is not a simple scientific answer to that. So, I mean, you know, you know, Doug Ford comes out and says, well, this was a bunch of yahoos down at uh, Queen's Park and completely unreasonable and almost basically saying they're bad Canadians and so forth. And a bunch of people will jump on that train and say, absolutely, that's right. I mean, mm-hmm. those people should be, you know, corralled or whatever. Yeah. And on the other hand, people are saying, well, how else would they get their message out? Right. And I mean, the danger is, uh, at least for me, is to say at this time, I, I, for me, I think it's misguided to, to, to at this time to protest in large number just for the straight epidemiological yeah. reasons. But I'm not saying they're bad Canadians. I mean, not all of us have top notch epidemiological uh, information at our fingertips. Uh, we, and some of us think we do. When you read people's Facebook posts, it's like the old joke, and everybody thinks they're an epidemiologist, right? <laughs> because everybody's got a five-point solution on Facebook for what we should do about uh, opening schools versus, you know, stores and whatever else, right? Open the border, shut the border. I've been putting those posts up, so has everybody, right? Yeah, everybody, you know, everybody I've turned, into my, I've turned into my grandfather on Facebook, you know? <laughs> Close the border forever to the United States, you know, whatever, right? Um, so... That's unreasonable, right? But, you know, we cannot have only the government line. Like, I would be a big fan if you've got a view that the um, that the lockdowns are unreasonable, you know, circulate the view, put it on social media, engage debate, try not to make just name-calling because that's, you know, doesn't achieve anything, right? Uh, unfortunately, that's what's, you know, on social media. But, like, at this time, I mean, until we really know more about COVID, uh, protesting in number uh, is just a, is just a bad epidemiological idea. Right. But I I understand what you're saying. Like, I'm with you that these these people need to get their message out somehow, because as you said, yes, COVID is 
going to cause deaths. But there's other things that are happening with the social social isolation. There's, you know, mental health issues that are happening. Suicides are going up. Um, people are losing all of their income, their businesses. Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of negative impacts of the social social isolation. And I think the protesters points are we can't ignore this. Like, yes, it's very easy to stand up there, Justin Trudeau, and wave your glorious hair and say, stay home. You're saving people and saving lives. And, you know, what's most important is your health and wellness. And we'll give you, you know, a few dollars to to take care of yourselves. But when you're the people who are not employed and who are trying to figure out how am I supposed to get through this and how am I supposed to live and how am I supposed to support my family, then yeah, I mean, you can't just have the government side. There's a lot of negative impacts that are happening from all of us just being locked in our homes right now. Well, that's true. And then that's the big thing is that protest cannot be seen as either unpatriotic or anti-Canadian or anti-public uh, interest. I mean, if we did not debate ideas in a democratic society, we would be we would be in serious trouble. We cannot have only the government line. Partially because the government line is, by virtue of the of the misunderstood nature of this disease at this time, inconsistent. I mean, I'm sure many people who listen to your podcast and elsewhere can can barely stand listening to the hourly updates about COVID on the radio because every hour we're given a completely different message. You know, one hour it's Armageddon, the numbers are up. This is the worst thing we've ever seen. An hour later, they're saying, oh, actually, the last couple of days weren't so bad. And now we can sort of get a little bit of a plan together for when we're reopening. The next day, it's, oh, no, it's another bump. All these talk about opening has to go back out the window. I mean, it's maddening for people. So if the government doesn't have a consistent message, why would it be you know, unpatriotic or un-Canadian or something for people to even express a different view. The other thing is, too, we have to remember when people express a different view, uh, they might not be that closed-minded about it either. They might just be looking to have a conversation with you. And a lot of people change their minds through the course of protest. They start off protesting and on the basis of gathering more information through protest, change their minds. That's normal too. Mm-hmm. Mike, I wish everyone in the world was as reasonable as you are because I consistently, anyone who's listened to the podcast from beginning and up until now will know that I change my mind all the time. If somebody shows me reason to believe that what I had previously thought to be true is not necessarily hard truth, I am happy to say, you know, I was wrong. I changed my mind. I changed my mind all the time. That's a that's a great thing. And I mean, you know, the number one thing for changing your mind is that we basically know that, you know, the truth of Western philosophy, if there is one, is that the whole world is socially constructed, right? Like we just basically made the whole thing up. We make right? everything up. Time is imaginary. Right. And now that we're in social isolation and I mean, <laughs> you still have a job, but Mark really and I are imaginary. unemployed. Time is so imaginary right now. <laughs> right. You're really making stuff up at the moment, right? Yeah. So, I mean, if, if the whole world is social construction, why would we not change our minds on occasion? And if you're somebody who's working hard and reading different things and being exposed to different ideas, why would you do all of that work just to say say the same thing year after year after year? I mean, I look at it like, you know, uh, there's an academic I really admire, a guy called Michel Foucault, who died some years ago. He said he used to get criticized for changing his mind. 
And he would say, well, why do you think I work like a dog just to say the same thing year after year? Of course, I changed my mind. Like, why is that a bad thing? Exactly. I mean, my opinion changes constantly. Opinion is probably not the right word, but I will think I believe I think a certain way. I believe a certain thing. And then somebody tells me evidence to the contrary. And I'll look at the other side of it. Like I, I try not to be somebody who only looks for things that support my initial belief and my own bias. I try to look at both sides of things and I make up my mind. And so, yeah, I am constantly changing my mind. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the big thing, too, is that we are all always acting on the information that we have seen, right? Right. I mean, most of us tend to seek out newspaper or not newspapers anymore, but media outlets that kind of confirm what we already think anyway. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, if you're kind of a downtown liberal kind of person, you know, you probably read the Toronto Star quite a lot, uh, maybe Now Magazine. You know, if you're a little more conservative and business minded, maybe the Globe and Mail. Uh, you know, if you're a little bit more kind of fancy yourself as being a bit more out there and a, a bit more of a freedom conservative, maybe the National Post. And then if that's all you read, well, you know, you're going to really be basing your decisions on a skewed perception of, of, of COVID-19. So those who are protesting are probably getting their information from one set of media sources, while those who are saying, oh, you know, lock those people up forever uh, are, you know, getting their information from uh, one other media outlet. Yeah. I mean, the big thing is try to read from across media platforms, for goodness sakes, because again, even with COVID, they're all telling a pretty different story at the moment. I would say to people, you know what, try to read some media that you don't agree with now and again. Like, pick up, uh, pick, go to a media source where you think that they've got a certain bias uh, and read read some of the opinion columns and reporting in those outlets just for the reason of trying to exercise your mind in a direction that you don't already think. I mean, I, I don't, I try not to read the Toronto Star on a lot of occasions because I'm like, well, these people are just telling me what I already think. You know, I should go read a little bit of National Post. You know, I think Conrad Black, his columns are out of his, he's out of his mind, but I find it entertaining and it forces me to at least think something different for a couple of minutes. I think this was the point of this. Um, Mark started this entire thing by just wanting people to think a little bit more, you know, not be so brainwashed, actually look at facts, look at data, look at numbers. And I know with something like COVID-19, we're only just now starting to get actual data, but look at all of this and then make your decisions. Don't just blindly go with the government says this, so this is what I will do. You know, we're not necessarily promoting don't do what the government tells you, but use your own minds a little bit. Use your own brains, your own critical thinking and decipher like what is actually happening right now. Well, just in general. And it's the same thing for how people will see and experience the police, right? I mean, you in your mind might have it locked up and say, you know, I'm for the police. They're doing a tough job. Everybody who says the police are overreaching and harassing people are just out to lunch and da da da. I said, well, you, you know, that might be easy for you to say if you've never had a negative interaction with mm-hmm. a police officer in your life. And what we actually find is the people who have have the worst views of the police organization are not necessarily those who have had directly bad experiences. They have family members and friends who have had bad experiences, and they've heard the stories about bad experiences. And very often it's those groups of people that have the worst view of the police. So who are you, as as somebody who's never had, I don't mean you and Mark, I mean, if you are someone who has never had a negative interaction with a police organization, 
you're really not in a position to judge an individual or a group of people who are saying they have had a bad experience. You've just never experienced it. It's outside your realm of experience, right? Yeah. I mean, take take their protest for for what it is, which is a representation of their experience, and try to take it on board and say, well, you know, what would we do with a policy response to deal with that, so that some group of people in our society is not getting the um, the short end of the stick in that enforcement regime. And very often you'll find that within the police organization, there are kind of early adopter police officers that are all set to make these changes because they're very aware of the problems in their own organization. They're, you know, when you, they call them change agents. I mean, anytime you go to an organization that you want to make reforms in, your first action is to try to find people in the organization that are already aware that there's a problem, mm-hmm. right? Because those are the people who are going to help you remake the organization. There are a lot of cops out there who will tell you we have a big problem with bias against racialized people, uh, people who are obviously uh, uh, have a, a, a you know who are poor in public space. Um, on certain types of crime is a gender issue where we don't take certain types of crime as seriously as we should, depending on whether the victim is a male or female. So, I mean, they know about all these things and they're all set to fix it. So if you are someone who thinks that the cops can do no wrong, you probably wouldn't be in agreement with most police officers who would say, actually, our organization needs major change. I agree with you on so many things. And again, you just blew my mind at an angle I never really thought about when you said, a lot of the people who have a negative view of the police are not necessarily because they have had negative interactions. It's family members. I have never had an actual negative interaction with police until I married Mark. And somehow, suddenly, I am, we're we're getting pulled over for no reason. And Mark was like, yeah, this is just like my regular life. Like he gets pulled over for nothing. He gets stopped and questioned by cops for nothing. We were once out to dinner one night and uh, you were asked for your ID for nothing, just for standing on the sidewalk, or, yeah. weren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. just for nothing. And right, kind of like a, a carding. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was the most fucked up situation I have ever seen. And so I think I probably have, as you said, more of a negative view of police. I have seen so much abuse of power. And no, it's, no, no, I got a pretty negative I mean, view. <laughs> you have a pretty negative view. But I mean, since being with him and just watching the ridiculousness that has gone on, and I mean, I have no other way to look at it other than racial profiling. How have I gone through my entire life never getting stopped by police for nothing, never, you know, getting carded? Never, none of this has ever happened to me. And now I am dating someone who is a visible minority and I'm getting pulled over all the time. I'm getting stopped all the time. I'm getting searched at the airport. We're getting asked for ID for doing nothing. Well, absolutely. I mean, um, the statistics, you know, are certainly bear out what you're saying. It's not just your personal experience. I mean, we know for 10 years or more in Toronto, it's been known that uh, in vastly disproportionate numbers, racialized people have been targeted for spot checks, what they call carding, uh, throughout that city, throughout the Peterborough region, Ottawa, Kingston. I mean, we know these things, right? And we're not talking about, oh, well, it's a little bit skewed by a couple of percentage points. I mean, it's off the charts, right? You know, Um, it always shocks undergraduates, you know, to say, you know, um, what percentage of the population in the United States do you think is African American? Is it thirty percent, ten percent, you know, three percent? 
And most students are like, oh, it's got to be like 30% or maybe 10%. It's 3% of the United States population. But then you're talking about like more than 50% of police contact with African-Americans in the United States. I mean, that's outrageous, mm-hmm. right? And we have, we have similar numbers, not as extreme with uh, black Canadians, but with, uh, it's up there. Depending on what city you're talking about, it can be between 3 to 5% of the population and 10 to 15% of the police contact or a little higher. But with Aboriginal, first, you know, Indigenous First Nations communities, again, off the charts, when you start going to places like um, North Bay, uh, uh, Sarnia, um, and through the Prairie Provinces, I mean, again, we're talking about less than 10% of the population, more than 50% of the police contact in some areas. I mean, it's a travesty. Yeah. Mark, is there anything else we need to ask? No, Mike I think this is perfect because this is what we do. This is what our podcast is all about. Let's just fucking hear everything, all sides of stuff, whether you agree or disagree. Uh, this was beautiful, brother. I love you for this. This was beautiful. Okay, no problem. It's fun for me too because it's stuff that I work on. And it's like, I try, like, you know, I obviously have my concerns. I'm very against police abuse of authority or whatever. You know, I do try to give it a little bit like you got to look at it a little from their point of view and that they feel like they're working with the deck stacked against them, whether you agree with that or not. That That is their perspective. Right. But, you know, in the end, uh, if people can just kind of think about it, well, you know, maybe I could look at it from another person's perspective for mm-hmm. a couple of minutes. Yes. You know, before I make my judgment on Facebook. Right. Like, yeah, because um, like when, 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 when I when I wanted to do this episode. I wanted to do this episode and I contacted you about it. And then I threw that thing into that Facebook group just to see like where the conversation goes. And it's so like, there's a whole group of people that are way over here. Do you know what I mean? And the other part is just way over there. It was really, exactly. it, was, it was really interesting to see. Yeah. I think you did a exactly. really good job at presenting all sides of this, of this topic and making people understand, you know, historically what has happened, what, it means to be actually giving up rights. Are we giving up rights? How much, how much of our rights are we giving up and why is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? I think it just helps people to kind of put this all together. And like you said, stop and think before they start judging somebody else who has a different viewpoint on this, because it really does depend on your past experience with law enforcement. It depends on your current situation right now and what you're dealing with through this global pandemic, which as I said at the beginning, I never thought thought I would see in my entire lifetime. So it's nice to kind of put this all together and make people stop and think for a minute about what is really going on and how should I be thinking about this? Or for people who were just sort of thinking, I'll do whatever, you know, Justin Trudeau and Doug Ford tell me to, maybe I need to stop and think about this. Is this good? Is this bad? What's what's going on? Right on. There you go. Cool, man. This, there is, you go. this is good. I appreciate appreciate the phone call tonight. Let me ask you a question. Yeah, man. Let me ask you a question. You still you still play guitar and singing and stuff like that? Yeah, a little bit. I mean I've been put, I've been putting some stuff on the on the Facebook there when I've been noodling around. What was the last thing you put up? I put up Charlie he asked for Gordon Lightfoot if I could read your mind. You know what? I, <laughs> I was like honestly I didn't see your Facebook video so Mark wants you to end this entire sing, recording sing with something. uh with singing sing Singing or playing, you know, give us a musical. You know what? I'll tell you because anyone that does sing, at some point we have them sing. Like it's true. Do you remember Robert Glean from our elementary school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Robert Glean's a musician, right? Like he he does musical theater and stuff, and he's also a massage therapist. We had him on our podcast way back when we started, and I kind of made him sing. And ever since anyone that anyone that's musical, I'm like sing sing something. 
So go for it, brother. Give me something. Wait, wait, wait. Like just an acapella song. I want you to sing me anything. Anything. It Charlie makes like the worst request. Like, <laughs> can you play some? Can you play some Gordon Lightfoot? Can you play some um, Bare Naked Ladies? Can you play some? I'm like these are like the worst. And then he's like, what about uh, what was that? Uh, who sings Every Rose Has Its Thorn? It's it's poison. It's po- yes, it's poison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why does why does why does he want like an acoustic poison? I don't know. Over over Facebook, like <laughs> I don't know. And I'm like, why do you want me to sing you if I could read your mind? Um, <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> Yeah, it's weird stuff. Give me something if you got anything. I don't care. I'll take anything. Uh, I just what's coming to mind? Like, uh, give me some Rolling Stones. Or I posted Brown Sugar the other day. Do it. You, you can get your guitar out right now. Then. <laughs> okay, hold on. Let's put you on speaker for a second. Yeah, I was just noodling with Brown Sugar the other day. All right, so. Go cool, cool, slash your avocado fields. Sold in the market down in New Orleans. Got old slash for no just doing all right. Here I'm with the wheel and just around midnight. Your brown sugar, I hung a dead sugar. Your brown sugar, just like a young girl should. That's what I was doing. Amazing. Right on, man. <laughs> you know I'm keeping that in the podcast, right? Yeah, that's definitely going on the final cut. Mark was dancing the entire time you were singing. It was great. <laughs> Awesome. There you go. That's a fun one to play, too, because it's so um, ridiculous. Thank you so much, Mike. I feel like you've given us so much information and really made people think about all the different angles that we can look at this from. Um, If anybody listening would want to pick your brain or get in touch with you, do you have social media or a way that people can get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, people can get me either through Twitter, at uh, which is at Michael A. Kempa, uh, K-E-M-P-A. Um, or uh, even at the university email address there, uh, which is just mkempa at uottawa.ca. Awesome. Thanks so much for recording with us so late at night. And uh, it's been nice catching up with you, old pal. Yeah, brother, it's been good. Absolutely. No, it's a lot of fun. And I mean, uh, as a professor, as a professor, I can't resist. I mean, we can't wait to talk to anybody who will listen to us about our research. So, you know. Plus, it's just fun talking to you guys. He does it all. He does it all. He's a professor. He does accents. He plays Rolling Stones. <laughs> Unbelievable. You do it all. Right on. Thanks for hanging out, brother. It's been good. No worries, guys. We'll talk to you soon, eh? You guys have been listening to Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. Peace.